0: We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder, E is for...
1: Danger! And, uh, dodge. With monster. Help, love me, and B, b-, b-, b- please help. Yeah. Welcome to another universe I'll... Yeah, see, I already screwed it up. See, I had an idea. Just whatever. Welcome to another episode of the is For podcast. I am your... I I can't even think of a clever thing to say. I am one of your hosts, Monster. Mm -hmm. And joining me tonight is the lovely Danger. Say hello, Danger. See, I would have gone with,
0: I am one of the many sentient chains in the
1: hospital room. I was going to say something about like in the universe of pleasure and pain and alternate dimensions. And the minute I opened my mouth, it all got gobbledygooked, and I can't even. In the world, in the world of pleasure and pain, both make me uncomfortable. (laughs) Thank you. That's exactly what I meant to say. Tonight, we are discussing the letter H is for Hellraiser. Now. If you go back a few seasons, you will know that Monster here has a deep, deep, somewhat awkward love for Mr. Clive Barker. And the works of Clive Barker mean a lot to me. And Hellraiser might be his most famous work. At least it's in the top two or three things he's ever done. So I wanted to kind of delve into the film, the origins of the Hellbound Heart, the novella that it comes from and just kind of some of the silly things that Barker had to deal with, with the MPAA. And also this was his first directorial film and some of the silliness that he dealt with on that. So Hellraiser for most horror nerds is considered a, I don't want to say a classic, but it's pretty popular. Oh yeah. yeah. Danger. Do you, do you like this film? Is this a film that you watched a lot or have an affinity for? Okay, so I realized in watching Hellraiser
0: recently, uh, to kind of prepare for this, that Hellraiser kind of has something that is a little strange. I do believe that just as we have talked about plenty of times, and we'll talk about more in the the future, that some things should just live in the nostalgia, and when you watch them again, it, it ruins them. I don't think Hellraiser is that, but it kind of is, because I remember watching it when I was much younger, and I loved it. And I watched it quite a few years ago, and I remember watching it again going, nah, this doesn't quite hold up the same. And so when I went back and watched it again to again to prepare for this, I was like, okay, it's not the same thing, but the all the essence of what I want is there. And I could see how they were very limited by the budget they had. So Clive Barker did as good as he could for, for the budget. And I'll actually compare it to what Todd McFarland said about Spawn, is it wasn't a home run, it was a double. And I feel like the practical effects were
1: great, but they weren't well done <laughs> in a lot of places. Yeah, and, and and I'll push back a little bit because I agree with you on the practical effects, the stuff that is surface level. But the actual like subtext about sexuality and pleasure and pain, I think almost resonates a little bit more clearer in the 2000s than it did in the 80s. And um, we'll get into gone. a little bit of this as we go on. And, and again, if you want to know a deep dive on Clive Barker himself, you can go back a couple seasons to be as for Barker. I think that was season two. two?
0: Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Cause and, season one was the episode that we don't speak of for B.
1: Yes. Yes. B is for. Let's just, just forget it. Um, B is for but,
0: don't listen to it.
1: <laughs> but B is for Barker in season two. We kind of get into his life and stuff, but he was a very open homosexual and a lot of his sexuality is in the undertext of Hellraiser and honestly in all of his work. Yep. But I think that the sexual nature and freedom, so to speak, in Hellraiser is almost more acceptable now than it was when he was trying to make the film. And we'll get into that as we go on with some of the MPAA's suggestions and stuff to, uh, as far as editing goes. But I agree. I agree that the claymation stop motion animation stuff that they did with Frank and stuff is a little bit dated. Um, it's not the kind of practical effects like there's a big difference between what you see in Hellraiser versus uh Bodine's effects in the thing. Like yes. there's definitely a gap there. So I, I agree with you on that, but the actual subplot and and theory behind Hellraiser. I don't know. I think it still resonates pretty clear these days. So I think that and I haven't watched the new
0: one. I, I don't really have a me lot of Me neither. Desire. And I
1: wanted to watch okay. it before we did this and I just did not get around to it.
0: I I honestly don't have a lot of desire to watch it because me it's neither. is from what I understand, it does Clive Barker doesn't have a lot to do with it. It's just kind of barred from and to me it kind of feels like where dimension put out what was it um 8 and 9 to just keep the rights
1: basically and and we're not going to we're not going to get into that here tonight uh just a quick umbrella statement the first 3 especially the first two but the first 3 hellraiser films all had a little bit of Clive Barker's input Um, He only directed the first, but the Mm -hmm. second and third, he was an executive producer. I believe he was a writer on the second one. He might have been. But once four through 27 or however many damn films they made, they basically just started shoehorning Pinhead and Hellraiser themes into movies that had nothing to do with it. They took Um, scripts that had nothing to do with the genobites and put them in. Exactly. So we're not going to get into all of that because that is a bastardization. I will say that the remake is supposedly a little more faithful to the original and the novella, which makes me want to watch it. Mm -hmm. But I just I just have not gotten around to it. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, to go back to
0: what you were saying before, I feel like Clive Barker was an open Homosexual, I say was, he still is, but, you know, at the time of making it, he was in uh, one of the few open homosexual writers, uh, directors and all that, you know, he was able to do a lot of things in a book that he wasn't able to do in the movie, especially a movie he was trying to get out to the mainstream. And I feel like if he was to go back and do that now, it would probably be a lot more less shrouded in, Mm -hmm. you know, in analogies or or whatever you know he would be a lot more it's, forward with it
1: it's funny i just listened to a interview with him and mick garris which if, if you're not familiar with mick garris he's another one of these horror guys that's been around for a hundred years he's adapted a bunch of stephen king properties and stuff and he has a podcast called postmortem where he interviews a lot of these horror elites and it's very interesting that back in the uh 80s and 90s when Barker was really trying to publish this stuff and push this stuff, he got a lot of pushback because of his homosexuality. Because, again, you know, you you write about things you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, and a lot of Clive Barker's stories and novels center around homosexual protagonists. Mm-hmm. And the amount of pushback he got from editors and publishers is astonishing. Sure. And now... That would be a selling point. You would see on the cover from the best-selling horror homosexual author. Like That would be something you could advertise with. But 20, 30 years ago when he was just trying to make it, it was a hindrance. And not the homosexual piece, but the sexual content of Hellraiser was the big issue that the MPAA had. Um, and you probably know this danger, but for our listeners that might not know, especially in America, we don't have a problem with violence. You can decapitate people. You can stab them. You can rip them to shreds. Oh, yeah. But when it comes to sexuality, ooh, that's ooh, you can show three seconds of nipple. But if you show four, we're going to have to give you an X rating. Like, right. They take that real seriously.
0: And what's funny about that is I actually feel like Hellraiser
1: is way more violent than sexual. But that wasn't necessarily the original intent. Oh, no, no. But we'll get there. All right.
0: So take me down uh, the Hellraiser rabbit
1: hole. So for anybody that doesn't know this film, Hellraiser is essentially a horror film that was written and directed by Clive Barker. It was released September 10th, 1987, and it was based on Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. Now, something I didn't know, even being the big Barker fan that I am until doing this research, was that he basically wrote the novella with intentions to develop it into a film. Um, A couple of his Books of Blood short stories had been adapted into films and a Tales from the Crypt episode, and he was not happy with it at all. And Danger, I think we talked about this before, but the film adaptation of Rawhead Rex yes. is a uh, it is an abomination. That is a <laughs> wonderful film. You watch your mouth. Um, I, As it, someone who has read the story and knows what Barker was going for, that film, it's a dude in a rubber suit with a dickhead. That is the entire okay. movie. Okay, so they
0: captured what Clive Barker was going for in the, like what he left in the toilet when he took a break <laughs> from writing that movie was, was terrible. It's great if you want to watch a bad movie, uh, but it's not a good movie by any means.
1: And again, I keep saying this and I'll probably say it 10 more times for the episodes over to, to really hear what I have to say about Clive Barker. Please listen to B is for Barker from season two, but the books of blood series is some of my favorite literature in, in all of writing history. Clive Barker's short stories, to me, are perfection. And so Hell, uh, the Hellbound Heart that Hellraiser is based on is a novella. So uh, a novella is a little bit shorter than a novel, but a little bit too long to be considered a short story. But it's it's got all the pieces there, but it's not a, a long read and it's not a hard read. So if anybody's interested in Hellraiser... I would highly recommend reading The Hellbound Heart. Um, And we'll get into some of the differences, but they're very minute. So he adapted this into uh, the film Hellraiser. Andrew Robinson plays the character Larry, Claire Higgins as Julia, Sean Chapman as Frank, and probably the most popular is Ashley Lawrence as Kirstie. Um, I don't know why I said that, because obviously the most popular is Doug Bradley as the head Cenobite, who Barker never called Pinhead. Right. If you watch the film, Pinhead never comes up. He's actually referred to as the hell priest in some, some other yeah. later works by, by Barker. Yeah. Cause it's kind and, of all
0: one universe that Barker created. Right. And,
1: and Pinhead so, shows up in those places. So to show how freaking nerdy I am, there's a detective in a couple of Barker's works called D'Amour, uh Harry Dia Moore. And, He's in the Damnation Game, which became, um, what is that? Uh, Lord of Illusions, the, the Clyde Barker film. And years later, they did a, uh, Barker wrote a novel called The Scarlet Gospels. And this is one of my favorite Barker works, where it actually mixes the world of Harry Amore and the Hell Priest Pinhead from Hellraiser. Okay, this is as deep in the trenches of Barker nerdom as you can get. But it's really, really good. But, but again, in the novella, The Hellbound Heart, Barker is a little bit looser with the description of quote-unquote Pinhead. Very androgynous. Most people tend to believe that Pinhead in the book is a female. And in the remake, the 2022 remake, it is a female. Right. Um, but I don't believe that the gender was ever fully established in the novella. Well, I I
0: don't feel like the gender needed to be established for the character. It it just wasn't a quality that the character needed. I think at the time the movie came out, you absolutely needed a gender. You know, people needed a gender to grab onto. Whereas now I don't think it would be a thing to be like, this is a genderless
1: being, you know. again. Again, that's part of what I was saying before. In the in the climate of twenty twenty three, this almost works better. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, but I um, I doubt you'd be able to reboot Hellraiser after it was just rebooted.
1: Oh sure, 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 sure. Yeah. This is a common thread in a lot of Barker's work. Um, one of his big, almost like Lord of the Rings style epics, uh, A Magica one of the main characters is very androgynous and they never really specify if it's male or female. That's, that's something that's kind of a trope in Barker's work.
0: If, if it was ever made into a uh, movie TV show, whatever,
1: Tilda Swinton right there. There you go. There you go. No, that's, that's when I think of pinhead from the novella, it's very sexual but as far as the kind of androgynous vibe, yeah, that's that's not you're not far off yeah. for sure. There's also a couple of other cinnabites that are introduced in the film that are kind of fun. There is the Chatterer, mm. who I really like, yeah. kind of doesn't have gums; it's just teeth. Yeah. There's also Butterball, who is just basically this oh. fat, greasy thing. Yeah. And then there's, she's only known as the. Female Cenobite?
0: The one with like the Tra- ring
1: thing? No. Yeah. So basically, what we were saying about Tilda Swinton, it's a very androgynous looking character. Yeah. But her neck is pulled open in a very. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought she had this like ring thing that was like piercing into her face or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. Maybe. Maybe. But the big thing was that her neck is pulled open. And the slit in her neck hole looks kind of like a... Vagina? Yeah, what you said. And they're all dressed in a very, like, leather and chain BDSM Mm. kind of thing. Pain and and pleasure.
0: Pain and pleasure.
1: Yes. And this all comes from Barker's experience going to BDSM clubs in England. Yep. (laughs) Yes. And as, as Pinhead puts it in the film, angels to some. Demons to others.
0: Yes, <laughs> but you know, you know what you can't do in a BDSM club. You can't go to Podbean slash Danger Sarge and get one month free of podcast hosting services. Of course, those terms and conditions will apply, which you can't get those in a
1: BDSM club either. Okay, real quick. I'm pretty sure that in a BDSM club, terms and conditions 100% <laughs> apply. But you, not to your podcast. <laughs> you might have to get that shit in writing before you go back to someone's place. But yeah. <laughs> you made Sarge proud. Thanks. He would be very proud of you Thank tonight. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I touched on this real briefly. And again, I don't want to get deep in the weeds on this, but this is the first film that clive barker ever wrote uh, or ever directed excuse me after that he would direct nightbreed in 1990 and lord of illusions in 1995 and what was really funny is before hellraiser barker had no film uh experience but everybody else on set did and you would he was very nervous and he approached it with a bit of like you know humbleness and whatever but everybody on set was like, hey, man, we're going to help you with this. Yeah, And I think that that's why Hellraiser succeeds, because while it's not a perfect film and it's very dated, um, very. the cast and the crew were on his side and yeah. they wanted him to succeed. And I think you can kind of, you know, you can kind of feel that in the film. Yeah,
0: yeah. It- Okay. So one of the things that really took me out of it last time I watched it, which I, a week ago, two weeks ago, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time watching TV and stuff lately, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle of all that. But I think the datedness of it now, I will watch movies from forever ago and, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. It doesn't bother. I mean, you go back to the 1900s with your films. So, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, all the way back. When they called them talkies, And... Uh, those are some of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm wearing a Wolfman shirt from the 40s. <laughs> so I think the thing that actually took me out of it when I was watching it was not the fact that the clothes are dated or, you know, even honestly, I think that's a badass house they live in. Like, I, I love that house. Um, needs a little updating, but, you know, the the effects of it, the practical effects of it are is what dates it to me, you know, like mm-hmm. like the one that makes me almost cringe with not like oh that would hurt and it's right towards the beginning it's when they're moving that mattress into the house and they're trying to cram it up the stairs and he catches his hand on the nail yeah and it's like yeah. that's not how that would happen now I understand they may have like turned it up a little bit just to you know get the effect and all but it just that pulled me out of it but at the same time it's fun it's fun
1: yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. And and like I said before, you know, you have films from the, the 80s and 90s with, well, more 70s and 80s uh, with practical effects that have aged really well and then some that don't. And I think Hellraiser is a good mix of the two. I think when you first see Frank start coming back to life, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute, some of that looks incredible. Oh, yeah. No, and it's that's, that's still fun. Yeah, and and no, is it the most realistic thing you've ever seen? Of course not. But does it work for the tone of the film? And is it memorable? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you have other little things like that, and and the the skeleton dragon, and we'll Mm. we'll get there. Yeah, Um, some of that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I
0: forgot about that skeleton dragon when I until I watched it again. It was like, oh, that does that weird. Okay. (laughs)
1: So, yeah, there, there are a lot of differences between the book um, and the film. But again, the fact that you have the author of the, the novella writing and directing the film, at least in my uh, opinion, you almost forgive the differences because you feel like the same creative mind is saying, OK, this works really good on the page, but this will work really well visually. And, and we'll get into some of those differences. But like one of the biggest differences is Julia when she's murdering people. And again, for people that don't know the film, don't know what I'm talking about. We'll get there. In the book, it's a knife. But in the film, it's a hammer. And there's something very visceral about the physicality of a blunt force yeah, trauma versus a stabbing. You know, and, and, and so I think that Barker knowing his audience, like, okay, this works great as print. This works great as visual. And, and again, again, listen to B for Barker. I gloat how much I love this man. So yeah, I think he's a brilliant genius, but if there's, if
0: there's anything that anybody could say about our podcast is that we are really good at plugging ourselves. (laughs) Anyway,
1: as as the big horror nerd savant, whatever you want to call me. I feel like Clive Barker is idiot savant. More of the idiot part, less of the savant part. Um, (laughs) I feel like Barker is one of the like absolute tip top of the mountain when it comes to like horror geniuses, because he's one of the few horror entities that can write can direct can paint as, I mean, Clive Barker's name is on video games, films, novels, short stories. Like, he's an incredibly talented artist across several mediums. And as much as I love Stephen King, as much as I love Richard Matheson, as much as I love Lovecraft and Poe, those guys are all known for very specific things. Like, they're great novelists. Or like um, um, James Wan. He's a great horror director. But Barker's one of the few that kind of transcends all of this.
0: Okay, so I know I said this in B is for Barker before. And I'm going to say it again because this is where we are. Um, I think, okay, if you got a restaurant and their menu has Chinese to Italian food on it. Oh, I don't they're... like
1: what you're doing. Oh, I no. know
0: where you're going oh, with this and I'm I don't gonna... like it at all. So I think that he is able to do these things, but I don't think directing is his strong suit. I should slap the shit out of you. (laughs) But you won't. Um, So I I don't think directing is a strong suit. And I actually think that somebody like Barker should be in a producer-writer seat. So you can do things like the knife worked better in the book, but the hammer is going to work better visually. And then to have a director... That does horror movie or does horror things in general, whether it's just a TV show or whatever. But I that I don't think that that it should be that way. Or that the writer of the book should be the director of the movie, because it's almost like you are you're you're keeping the circle too small and you're not allowing other ideas to come in. Yes, the cast and crew helped him out, but they just helped him out with being able to make it. Didn't help him out with like, hey, this would work better here kind
1: of a thing. This whole episode could be a debate on this one specific topic because I disagree so heartily. And Um, I'm going to
0: correct you on what you said before. Yes. Uh, Lovecraft, Poe, Matheson. Yes. Those guys are known for, for their writing. Stephen King is known for writer
1: writing and cocaine. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He is. If, if Stephen King is proficient at two things, it is, writing incredible novels and snorting incredible quantities of cocaine. Which is how he writes so many novels. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the seventies and eighties stretch of Stephen King is it might as well say author Stephen King co-written cocaine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But Kathy Bates Um,
0: put it into all that with misery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so anyway, like I said, we can debate this whole Barker is a genius thing all night long and, and we'll get into some of the reasons why I think he's a better director than the films portray him as. Okay. I, I think that there's a lot of external factors that had, have hindered his directorial productions. But I, I see what you're saying, for sure. When you actually see the product on the screen, like Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusions all have great moments. But are they great movies? Eh, Not necessarily. And they're very niche. They're very for a particular audience. They are. Um, So I'm going to go through the plot of Hellraiser kind of quick. It's very convoluted. Hellraiser is interesting because if you want to look at it on the surface, it's a very simple story. But if you actually delve into it, it's fairly convoluted and complicated. And so I've always had
0: an, uh, an interest in the Hellraiser world and all, and never to the point where I've read the book. And I probably should, um, how about hard? It's a all. quick read. It's yeah, not hard. I, I should, I'll let you borrow it. It's almost like the, I, I find more interest in just like the mythology around all of it and kind of the world yeah. that's been built, you know? So I have, um, a, a knowledge base about the world, but, Again, never read the books. Uh, so I think yeah. there's a lot to the story that isn't really brought out in the movie. But if you pay attention in the movie, you kind of can put some pieces together that aren't yeah. that that aren't on the surface.
1: So I wrote a pretty kind of like plot summary, you know, from watching the film several times and some other stuff. How many I times watched. have you seen this movie? Out of curiosity. Ooh probably in the eight to 10 range. Okay. Okay. You would... know, being a, big, being a big Barker fan. So, so it was like one of those things that I watched it a couple times and then I would need to show it to a couple of friends. And then I read the novella, which made me want to watch it a couple more times. And then you get it on DVD and you got to watch it with the commentary, you know? So yeah, I'd put it in the eight to 10 range. I would put it into uh, the three to five. Right? And that's fair. That's yeah. fair. So, so this plot summary that I have here is very basic and it's kind of silly. And that's kind of what I was going for. Feel free to interject at any moment. And, and that's fine. I'm just going to start. And you just, you just throw it in there. Okay. All right. So basically the film Hellraiser, the story follows a couple, Larry and Julia, who move into Larry's dead grandmother's old house. Larry's brother, Frank had been living in the house before Larry and Julia arrived. They find some pictures of Frank with a bunch of different women and artifacts of all his travels. And it, again, in the book, Frank is a little bit deeper. He's very surface level. He's basically a horn dog in the film. Yeah. Uh, and in the novella, there's a little more to him, but, you know, but either way, he's a sick bastard. So Frank is the one who actually gets the puzzle box into the house. Um, it's, it's known in the films as the laminate configuration because in the novella, it's the configuration. I don't know how to pronounce it. Oh,
0: um, I was it, going to ask you, like, what the hell? But yeah, okay, fair enough. Go
1: the on. lament configuration is like five syllables, yep. and the novella pronunciation is like 12. So it's that's why they changed it. Um, yeah, makes sense. But basically, the way it's set up is the possessor of the puzzle box, can, if they can open it, it will take the holder to a whole new realm of pleasure. If your idea of pleasure is literally being ripped apart by chains. Well, um, I mean,
0: we all have a different kink, I guess.
1: Hey, hey, well, uh, what, what, what's that phrase? I, I'm not going to yuck your yum. Like whatever you're into, that's fine. If you want to literally be ripped to shreds by chains, hard to do that more than once. But hey, if that's your thing, you do you. Live your truth.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of uh jokes I could put in there, but then we <laughs> wouldn't be this family-friendly show that we are.
1: Yeah, we're very family-friendly. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh Speaking of which, Frank manages to open the puzzle box, and he sumbers members from the Order of the Gash. Sorry, I'm going to correct script.
0: you there. I'm going to actually stop you. Do you want to start that back over? Because you said he sumbers. Did I? Yep.
1: No. Okay. No, I want to keep that. He summoned them. Okay, I was going to give you a chance to sound um,
0: like you know how.
1: Frank to... manages to open the puzzle box and summons members from the Order of the Gash, which is I don't know if that's ever said in the film, but essentially that's the Cinebites. Um, um I don't know if it is, but I think it's kind of assumed if you're smart enough. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. They, they're specifically called Order of the Gash in the in novella. No, but sorry, sorry. I thought
0: you were thinking. Uh, I thought you were talking about another part of that statement altogether. But no, I don't remember Order of the Gash ever actually mentioned.
1: So. Yeah, but but either way, it just means that the the weird BDSM demons show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, by by opening the puzzle box, the Cinevites show up. They claim Frank's soul and for all intents and purposes, Frank is dead. Yeah. Um, so Julia and Larry move into this house and they have a very loveless marriage and Larry can't quite figure out what's going on with Julia. Well, turns out a week before Larry and Julia got married, Frank and Julia went to pound town. Yeah. Um, and apparently it was hot enough that Julia thinks about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, Frank is a dirty bastard and so for him it was just like huh, I'm going to bang my brother's fiance and Julia kind of got attached to it. Yeah. Um it in was the film,
0: so it was so good she could look through pictures of him with other women and be okay yes, with it. Yes, and
1: that was good enough. Yeah. yeah. Um and, and in the film to really kind of like drive this point home, they actually do it on her wedding dress, mm. which is oh, that's rough. So anyway, Larry and Julia start moving in and Larry's daughter, Kirsty comes by to stay with them for a while. Now, in the not, the novella, Kirsty is not related to Larry. He is, She is kind of an admirer. She kind of has a crush on Larry. Barker decided to kind of make this more of a family thing. Either way, I think both dynamics work. Yeah. So as you alluded to earlier, Larry cuts his hand on a nail while moving some stuff into the house. And when the blood drips onto the floor that Frank died in, Frank starts to resurrect. Okay, now me, I, I I, have a question about that because yes.
0: in watching the movie again, I it did not make sense to me the logistics of this house. Frank died mm-hmm. in that room, the room mm-hmm. that doesn't like hasn't been repaired or painted in 75 years and has subfloor in it. And yeah. So I don't remember him cutting his hand in that room. I always kind of
1: saw it as in the stairwell. He cuts his hand in the stairwell, but the blood drips on the floor in that room. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to go with it. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me quick over arcing theme here. If you put too much thought into horror. Oh yeah. yeah, You're going to have a bad time. Yeah, no, (laughs) but
0: that was just, it was a detail in watching it where I was like, I guess we're going to play. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. All right. All right.
1: But I will say this scene where the blood hits the ground and Frank begins to emerge from the floorboards is one of the best scenes in the film. Hmm. It is this goopy, gross thing of like, we, we brought up uh, Boteen's effects in The Thing earlier. This, in my opinion, almost rivals some of the stuff in The Thing. This, as far as practical effects go, works really well. Do we? Who did the effects
0: for the movie? I don't even remember seeing.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was like anybody super specific because okay. I, it doesn't come up in and like any of the research. You know, as far as like, it's not K and B, it's yeah. not um, you know, some of the bigger names that you see all the time. So yeah, I think it was just a, a small effect studio. Well, they were uh, masters of body horror for sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. As the blood hits the ground, Frank starts to kind of be put back together, but only sorta because most he's mostly just bones and some muscle tissue. He, he looks disgusting yep. and he basically tells Julia that he needs more blood to transform into a human. Okay. Um, so
0: Frank must have gave it to real good because in that shape he was still able yes. to seduce her into bringing men in to kill them
1: which is exactly what starts to happen next the the next yeah. sorry spoiler ride. for our own <laughs> episode <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so julia starts to go out to these bars and lure these men back with promises of having sex and and let me just tell you by 1980 standards julia basically walks in in like a black shoulder padded uh power suit kind yep. of thing. Yeah. And somehow is the most intriguing, sexually exciting woman in the bar ever. <laughs> yeah. I, she's, she looks like she's there to
0: close a deal. Um yes. Like a merger. She looks
1: like a realtor.
0: Yeah. 100%.
1: Yeah. But basically she brings these dudes back and in, in the novella, she stabs them with a knife. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the film, she bludgeons them to death with a hammer. Uh, but The, the horrible bl- way to but go. The-
0: but honestly, I've kind of always wanted to know what it feels like, but I'll never do it, honestly. To...
1: Hold on. Yeah. You You want to know what it feels like yeah. to be bludgeoned by a hammer? No,
0: no, to just... Or to do to, the bludgeon. To just
1: one good whack, just like, whack, and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to dial 9-1 on my phone. They don't Depending call me danger for nothing. Ooh. So anyway, um, every drop of blood that is spilt kind of brings Frank a little bit more closer to life. The exact quote is, "Every drop of blood you spill puts more flesh on my bones." Yeah, and we both want that, don't we? Yep. come to Daddy.
0: Well, yeah. I there's mean, some she, really Julia wants his bone, so you know. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. Not the uh, so not anyway the,
0: uh, tissue and yeah uh, anyway.
1: He kind of looks like um, what was that kid's name on Nickelodeon that flipped over the swing set and became inside out boy. You know what I'm talking about? No, no. Oh, you're missing out. But that's what Frank looks like at about this stage. Yeah. Um,
0: no, no, I uh, actually, I, I wanted to find it, but there was a little short film that popped up on a shutter and it was about a guy whose wife asked him to take off his skin and, he like took his skin off and hung it up in the closet. And then like, it was the whole thing was about him just living life as like a skinless man. <laughs> and it was
1: really bizarre. That is what Frank looks like essentially at this stage of the film. Yeah. So eventually Kirstie, uh stumbles upon Frank absorbing a victim and it's very unsettling. He mm-hmm. like sticks his yep. fingers into the guy's skin and it's, Oh, it's great. So Frank, Essentially, tries to sexually assault her, um, maybe kill her. No, she gets away. Um, Sometimes they just go hand in hand, you know. They, they really do. Uh, Tomato, tomato. But as she's escaping him, she grabs the puzzle box and takes it with her. As she's running away, she ends up passing out on the sidewalk and wakes up in this hospital. They don't really know what to do with her, so they're like, "Here, you brought this puzzle box in. Why don't you play with this until you feel better?" So she sits in her bed and she starts messing with it and she somehow miraculously opens it when she does this it, to me this is probably my favorite part of the whole film
0: yes i 100
1: agree because i think this is just really cool but this oh. is so surreal and otherworldly like the Cinnabites are cool and there's all kinds of cool stuff in this film but for some reason this part like could almost be its own short film but she she opens the box and this like hole in the wall open and this long like archway hallway up here and at the end is narnia sorry a little worse than that she starts to walk down it and then this big penisy worm looking thing appears and starts running directly at her now intentionally or not if you watch the film closely you can see the wheels behind the thing pushing it.
0: Don't, don't ruin the, the penis worm. Don't
1: ruin what Frank became. All right. Just... This, this It looks like a hot dog that has slightly become thawed out. So it has a slight bend in it. And the face is at the bottom of it. It is horrible. And at the same time, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm with you. It's it's one of those
0: okay, so when the thing opens up and the hallway appears, like it's just it's a really cool moment to me. Like and then when the genobites are like are, are, I... <laughs> genobites. They're coming. They're yeah. coming. Okay. I just always mispronounce it. Anyway, when they appear, like it's just I think it's all just a really cool thing. Yes, that uh penis worm thing, it's so bad, it's great.
1: So it just occurred to me that you have been calling them chino bites yes so now i'm picturing chino marino with like bdsm gear on and like pins in his face and and like clamps on his nipples and for some reason that makes sense like it doesn't shock me like it would not shock me to see chino marino at a bdsm club
0: no it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me either but it uh it definitely changes the meaning of like around the fur adrenaline. Like it definitely changes the meaning of the name.
1: I want to know how Danger and I feel about Deftones. Just go to YouTube, look yeah. it up. It's on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so after Kirsty barely escapes the, the penis worm, the door closes up and the Cenobites show up. That's why they call it a one eyed <laughs> Willy. It's just the <laughs> Willy coming down the hallway. <laughs> So clearly this scares the shit out of her. She doesn't know what these things are. She doesn't know what they are, they're doing. And they're quite alarming Bradley, to see.
0: I mean, you know.
1: Yes. And and Doug Bradley has some of the best lines in, in the whole film. And and this part right here, she, she's freaking out. And she's like, who are you? What are you doing? And, and Doug Bradley, as pinhead, just replies, demons to some, angels to others. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. And so she's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That sounds <laughs> shitty. No. Um, no. So she basically tells him, I know what you guys are. You know, my uncle Frank, that dude. And they're like, yeah, we know Frank. And so she's like, hey, if you spare me, I will take you to him. Will you please spare me? And do you know what Doug Bradley at, at Pinhead's response is? I forget off the top of my head, but. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so she's like, good enough. Let's go. Yeah. So, and, and, and to just drive the point home, Pinhead's final line is if you're lying to us, if we, if you don't deliver, tear your soul apart. No. Yeah. Yeah. We're a I, good threat. You
0: yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like you tearing me apart would be more of a threat than my soul because I can't feel my soul. I mean, you know, but how are you going to do it? You're going to, you're magical hooks? I don't. I don't know that the the image that sticks to me sticks with me is like uh, in the beginning. I think it is when uh, they're like putting together like the pieces of Frank's head. And it's like just like the like swatch of ear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: That to me, it sounds more painful. But anyway, we'll get to the logistics of tearing you physically and metaphysically apart as we go on. Cool. Back to the plot of the film. So at this point, Frank has become whole again. And he is just pounding julia again so we're back to that yeah yeah which is yeah. what julia wanted but in order to do this frank has stolen larry's skin yes so now frank is in the skin of larry so when Kirsty shows up to the house she's like oh my god dad let me tell you what's going on and then she realizes it's frank wearing a larry suit um leisure suit larry oh le- leisure pleasure whatever yeah um So uh, basically, she finally figures out that like, oh, wait, you're not my dad. I can see the like stitch lines around your face. You this is terrifying, man. Um, Frank must have
0: like his his like hallway horror worm penis thing must be like really good to like for Julia to give it up to a guy with
1: like stitches in his face that look like she wanted
0: that she cheated on.
1: the D so bad that she was literally taking a hammer to to strange dudes heads in their attic just with the like hopes to get some of that crazy Frank D again i mean
0: maybe Clive Barker needs to write a story about why Frank's little Frank was that good yeah and he's going to call it to
1: be frank yeah. oh God, I oh, I will send him a tran- uh transcript of this episode. So anyway, because Kiersey's not a complete idiot, she figures out that this is Frank in a Larry suit, and she lures him back to the Cenobites, and the Cenobites claim him back by inserting him full of those metal hooks and ripping his body to shreds again. So um, all that
0: work and all those bodies for nothing. For nothing. I I had this like. Really funny image of like just trying to figure out how it was that they got to the house. Did they like get a cab? And so, could you imagine like Pinhead sitting in the back of your cab, or like do they walk there? Like, did he like huff it down, you know, down the street, like just walking through the neighborhood? Like,
1: so you know, I would Miss think vagina that,
0: neck, just like,
1: yeah. So, I think, I think Pinhead sits in the front, whereas chatterer butterball and vagina neck sit in the back seat because you know he's the only one that really well well the female quote-unquote cinnabite does speak a couple times but doug bradley as pinhead is the main vocalizer you know he he's in the front seat and the cab driver is like freaking out and he's like turn here he's like yeah sure whatever and you know in the back seat here yeah in the chatterer and Butterballs eating a fried chicken leg or whatever, and so um, like and
0: like do they go? God knows the, what the woman would do. They go out to the food. parking lot and like Kiersey's like you know what do we do? And and Penhead's like get a car. I could drive. I have a class C license.
1: <laughs> and and so they like steal a car and he like pulls a nail out of his head and starts like yeah. Jimmy ringing <laughs> the ignition. Yeah. So at, at this point they they rip Frank apart again. And they somehow doesn't matter. Kiersey reverses the puzzle box and makes them all (laughs) disappear. And hey, how how about the house catches on fire? Boom. The house is on fire. Okay. And don't don't do not skip past the skeleton dragon. We're getting there. So the house catches on fire. Kiersey and her quote unquote boyfriend, this dude is a He's a cardboard cutout. He does. He barely counts as a character in the film. Did they're he even show up in the movie before the ending? Yeah, he's in it like two or three times, but he's he's useless. Yeah. So anyway, they're standing there, and, and I kind of glossed over this earlier, but there's these people in the human realm that protect the puzzle box, and yada, yada, yada. It doesn't matter. Um, so at the very end, Kiersey and her boyfriend are standing there amongst these little, like, fires of the the burned-down house. And this homeless guy comes over and he has the the puzzle box. Turns out he's one of the puzzle guardians. So he grabs the box out of the fire and turns into this giant skeleton dragon thing. And, and like flies away on bone wings. I don't remember making chicken sounds, but I like it. Yeah, he clucks. He clucks very violently. Now. I feel like in the late 80s, you had to go out with a bang. So Barker was thinking, okay, the house catches on fire. There's all this flame. And now we're going to end with this skeleton dragon thing. I think I get where he was going. However, you want to know how the novella ends? Yeah. Spoiler alert for anybody that might want to read the book, because the book is very different, especially how it ends. During the altercation, when Kirsty comes back to the house, Frank inadvertently kills Julia. Kirsty then baits Frank. Okay, so Kirsty then baits Frank into admitting his true name out loud, and this is when the Cenobites appear, and they ensnare Frank and return him to their realm, telling Kirsty to leave downstairs. Kirsty sees sees Julia's disembodied head calling for help. Mm. The leader of the Cenobites, this, this new entity called the Engineer, appears okay. and seems to take Julia uh, as well uh, before briefly kind of like bumping into Kirsty. So after leaving the house, Kirsty realizes the Engineer gave her the puzzle box to watch over until another one sees it out. Looking at the box to surface, Kirsty imagines she sees Julia and Frank's faces, but not Larry's. Um, she wonders if there are other puzzles that may unlock doors to a paradise where Larry is, is at now, but laments that she may never find one and the broken hearts might be puzzles that cannot be solved. It's very poetic. Yeah. Um, well, he's a very poetic writer. He's very. He yeah. really is. So that's it. That's the basic of the Hellraiser film. And like I said, if you, if you like this concept and the, you know, the lore of it, part two is legitimately good. And part three is at least interesting enough. Okay. And part of it was actually filmed in high Point, And I know some yep. of the people that worked on it, which is kind of cool. So, um, so past that. So, so, num- room. so number two, I
0: wouldn't say number two is legitimately good. I would say le- number two is legitimately fun. It's a good time. You know, I I like it for it being a part of the universe. It's not a bad entry by any means, but it's not the best entry. I don't know.
1: It's just kind of in number three. There was an effort. A couple of quick facts, a couple of little interesting tidbits. I learned going through some of this, the film was a success. And it had a shit ton of remakes, which we already kind of discussed a little bit. Mostly just shoehorn like scripts that had nothing to do with Hellraiser or the Cenobites that they just shoehorned in.
0: Now um, you, you said uh, remakes, and it just had a bunch of sequels. They
1: only remade it once, right? They only yeah. Re- so okay, uh, okay. I okay. I just want to be just a bunch be of sequels. Be clear, and had one remake actually last year in twenty twenty two. Okay,
0: because um, I know at one point they talked about a TV show, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll get all to right, some of right. the other stuff that never all happened. Right. The Cenobites were never meant to be the stars of the film, but because of the way they look and the, the presence they had on screen, they kind of became iconic, especially yep. Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Right. Um, Which is really funny how these things work, because Pinhead is only in the original film. If you had to guess, how many minutes of screen time do you think Pinhead had in the original film? um
0: in the original film i th- i would be willing to bet that he has uh maybe 5 minutes maybe you're very close he had 8 yeah yeah exactly so I, and i know that because of what the films that we've done in the past and we've talked about the the screen time of like Jurassic Park i think the dinosaurs only had 15 right, minutes right. of screen time but Right. You think they've got a lot more, but the, the image of them that is so striking and, and remember, or you remember it so much. Um, but there is a picture that I wanted to find and I just didn't have enough time before we sat down tonight, but there's a picture of Doug Bradley in pinhead makeup, like on set playing football, like <laughs> throwing a football in the back line. Yes. It's, it's a great, it's a great picture. I love he- it.
1: See Barker and Bradley actually knew each other years before they made the film because they did theater together and Doug Bradley actually auditioned to be one of the movers in the very beginning of the film. It was a very small role. I'm, I don't even know if it was a speaking role and just, no, okay, it is one of those, uh, both this movers,
0: uh, talk and one of them pissed me off because, uh, he's like, I can't remember exactly what he says, but like, they're like, you know, do you want a drink? He's like, you got any beer? Yeah. What, what mover asked if you got beer and like, he's a creep. I don't like him. And it was just like the whole time. It's like,
1: really that guy, this, this this person. All right. Something else you probably picked up on that. Maybe the average viewer may not have is that this film is very, very British. um obviously clive barker was born in liverpool uh he grew up in england um really close to penny lane (laughs) but part of what they did to kind of try to quote unquote americanize it is a lot of the actors voices are overdubbed because they had that british accent um so when you watch the film again part of its surreal nature is the mouth and the vocals don't always match up perfectly because they had to overdub almost all the actors and actresses voice and in the late
0: 80s if you were a british person in a movie if you had a british accent <laughs> you were automatically smarter than anybody else in the room because True. you know the for some reason uh, i guess it still stands i don't know americans are idiots and british people are smarter i don't know not all british people i don't know but yeah it was just a thing that if Somebody was in a movie and British, they were smarter. If they were from any country, (laughs) they had a British accent as well. Right. Right. You know,
1: Greek, uh, you got a British accent. Go on. So the film received tons of really shitty sequels, but the novella actually received a couple of sequels as well. Uh, One we brought up earlier, the Scarlet Gospels, which was written by Clive Barker and published in 2015. Um, But then there was also Hellraiser, the Toll, which was published in 2018 b- written by Mark Allen Miller. But the story is based on a Clive Barker story. I have not read that one, but I am interested too because I like this world. I, l- I like this universe. I like um, that
0: too. Like uh, when Steve Larson died and uh, he was, he had written the whole girl with a dragon tattoo series and he had actually uh, was planning on it being like a 12 book series. And he only actually, really. he, he wrote, He only got three of them fully written. He actually died uh, delivering the manuscript basically for Hmm. the final one. But uh, then somebody else took over and wrote the last one based on all the notes and stuff that he had. So, you know, if it's done right, it's done well. You know, cool. I haven't read that one because I was such a fan of the three
1: books. And not to, you know, start to go out on a on a dour note, but Clive Barker got really, really sick. A couple of years ago, he um,
0: he, he went in for it or something.
1: Well, yeah, so he had that. Okay. But then he went in for a dental procedure and something happened where he ended up in a coma? And when he came out, it was kind of in the midst of the whole pandemic thing. And he kind of wasn't allowed to leave his house. And it's it, it really scary. But since then, he has started work on some more projects. Um, apparently, he has this huge epic that's going to come out in the next year or two but um like film or book but he he has mentioned that he would not mind taking a crack in another film or two but barker king all these guys they're getting up there in age and barker especially has had some serious health issues so i really i really don't know what else you know what the future holds for barker i hope there is some more material that comes out do you know how much money it made? Because, I mean, you said it was successful. Yeah. Okay. So. The The next thing I wanted to get into was the production of the film. Okay. So, the film took somewhere between nine and ten weeks to shoot. Do you know what the working title of the film was? No. What? Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. Uh, it's pretty straightforward
0: with all the cast and crew on what they were doing.
1: <laughs> right, right. So, before I get to the, the budget and everything... As I said before, this was Barker's first time filming. And here's what he had to say about it. He said um, he had an unalloyed fondness. The cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving. Barker admitted his own lack of knowledge on filmmaking, stating that he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens. If you'd shown me a plate of spaghetti and said that was a lens, I might have believed you. <laughs> okay.
0: I mean the I I think that's a, a stretch of course, but I understand his <laughs> his, uh, his
1: his likening that cuz he was a completely un
0: uh, He's also un, said in un, a
1: few an- Yes, and he said in a few anecdotes before where he when when he was finally like, "Hey, you're going to direct your film." He went to the library to check out uh, a couple of books on how to direct a film, but they were all checked out from the library. So he was like, "Well, I guess I'm going to have to wing it." Yeah. <laughs> I do want to get into some of the censorship things that he had to deal with? Yes, I'm um,
0: curious about that. I didn't know there was any of these. I should have assumed there was because
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Dealt with at that point. So.
1: But I will uh, to answer your previous question, the budget for the film was right around $1 million and it grossed at the box office, 14.6 million. Mm, That's a return. That's a
0: return. That's a return. It's not as Um, good as some of the other ones that we've, we've come across, but uh, that's,
1: it's it's a good one. I mean, now I don't, I would be happy
0: at the end of the day if I was Mr. Barker.
1: So I was born in 1985 and I think, You were born around the same time, right? 85, yes. 85. Mm -hmm. And Sarge was born in 1960, something or another. Um, I thought it was 1920-something, but go on. You might be right. Um, But I can remember being pretty young, running video games for the Sega Genesis, and seeing the Hellraiser cover with Pinhead holding the box on the cover. So I would have to imagine that the video rental for Hellraiser was also a pretty big cash cow at the time. So I, a lot of times
0: we don't have all of those numbers. Whenever I am doing a movie and I come across the lifetime gross, I always try to throw that in there because that's going to include the, the, uh, the video and, and DVD video sales and all that. So I would be curious as to know, what the lifetime is of this film especially considering it's had uh comic books i believe i had a video game at one point mm-hmm. um uh, i'd be interested to play the video game just because how do you make a pinhead video game
1: but no so, uh, i've talked about some of my favorite youtube channels and podcasts uh in the past but there's a youtube channel uh cv11 okay. V V 11 and the bulk of his content is first-person shooters from the 90s. And he did an episode about the Hellraiser game. Now, it was published April 1st of, of the year. So take it all with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But basically, what I think is fact is that they had started to make a Hellraiser video game. It was like we can't put this on Nintendo because this is atrocious. Yes. And then it's sort of like fan-made emulation became something you could play. So how close is it to the source material or what Barker's original idea was? I don't know. I do know that Clyde Barker has been uh, a part of a couple of video games. Yes. Again, go back to B is for Barker. Yeah. into window this crap. But. There's a PlayStation 3 game called Jericho that is... Mm. I legitimately enjoyed it. It's a first-person shooter with a little bit of horror elements to it. It's not a bad Um, game. No, it's not the best first-person shooter you can find, but Mm. it has a Clive Barker vibe about it, for sure. So, censorship. Needless to say, a film about Cinebites from another dimension that dress in BDSM clothing that blur the line between pleasure and pain probably had a little bit of a censorship issue.
0: I would say like just pitching that would be a censorship issue.
1: But again, as we stated at the beginning of this episode, the MPAA had less of an issue with the violence and more with the sexuality,
0: which it was um, a pretty
1: damn violent movie. And it was going to be a pretty damn sexual film, too. I'm and sure. there's a lot of that in there, but a lot of it got cut out as well. A couple of things. The first screening by the MPAA gave the film an X rating. Some of the scenes Not where surprising. Julia murders men for Frank were cut down a little bit, including this really bizarre story that I saw in a couple different places where one of the actors, one of the victims that Julia killed with a hammer, thought he should be naked. For the scene. Um, so they filmed it. Uh, but ultimately that was cut. Yeah. Some of the gory scenes where Frank is torn apart were cut down a little bit, but mostly it was the erotic stuff yep. that was, was cut down. This is really interesting. So Barker said that the seduction scene between Julia and Frank was a, initially a lot more explicit. This is his quote. Is this before Frank Hedskin? <laughs> Barker says... We did a version of this scene, which had some spanking in it. And the MPAA was not very appreciative of that. No. Lord knows where the spanking footage is. Somebody has it somewhere. And then he says, the MPAA told me I was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank but three would be deemed obscene. <laughs> I mean,
0: I grew up in a house where two buttocks was fine, but three, <laughs> no, it's just, it, I feel like the MPAA, which I I've tried to, you know, I've tried to find who they are, but you can't find who the MPAA is. I mean, like they're like shrouded in extreme mystery and, and there's actually documentaries about it that are fairly interesting to watch, but I feel like if you are putting limits like that on something, if you are writing, you know, two buttock thrusts is fine. Three is not. That should be enough of a, uh, of a flag or red flag to yourself. Like I am a moron and it's ridiculous in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, and again, it's, it's all a matter of the era in which these films are produced. This was 1987. The MPAA had a very distinct view of sexuality that in 2023 would be a little bit different. Yeah. Now, here's the big bombshell that I don't know that everybody knew that I had come across over the years, but everybody knows about the Freddy versus Jason yeah. film crossover. Yeah. Most people know that they were trying to do a Freddy versus Jason versus Ash from the Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Now, there was actually talks about a Hellraiser versus Halloween mm-hmm. crossover. Yep, it was going to be Pinhead versus Michael Myers. Yep, it was actually legitimately in works. It was going to be written by Clive Barker and directed by John Carpenter. I didn't know
0: that. I did. I did yeah. know that there was talks of it happening, but I didn't realize they were. Yeah.
1: But this was right when Clive Barker started to get really, really sick. Ah. And as time progressed and the climate changed, it just kind of dissipated and kind of disappeared.
0: Yeah, that sucks because that would have been cool. And I agree. Man. I would I have been agree. interested to see it, considering that in the i would say the first two movies we don't really see a display of pinhead's like strength by any means you know mm-hmm. um he's just more of a a presence you know i know we we do see him smite frank uh but you know we don't see him as a brute force as we do michael myers by any means you know mm-hmm. but also neither one of them are fast they just kind of walk and saunter towards the impending doom that they are there to bring.
1: Clive Barker writes his characters with this weird dichotomy of classiness and disturbingness. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that. Yes. That's part of the reason I love his work so much. And Pinhead is a great example of this, even though, the character of Pinhead, the Hell Priest, as he's referred to in in other Barker works, but Doug Bradley has such a commanding performance, has really cemented that character as a kind of an icon of the horror world. I feel like the Cenobites, the Hellraiser universe, is really interesting because, again, like I said earlier, in the first Hellraiser film, the Cenobites are not meant to be the stars of the show. Right. This is meant to be a story about sexual infidelity and relationships between husbands and wives and families. And the Cenobites are just the scary icing, the scary sprinkles on top. Mm -hmm. But again, because Doug Bradley does such a a infamous performance of pinhead, he kind of steals the show.
0: So I don't know if it is, Doug Bradley's performance and don't get me wrong. He is fantastic in the role. I don't know if it's necessarily his performance or the fact that the, the trio or the, the four of them, excuse me, um, are just such a striking visual and just so impacting, you know, and Doug Bradley is not a small man by any means he's a hulking mass of a man. Um, but it's like there, you can't, Walk away from that movie and forget what you saw, as far as those characters go. So, of course, you know one of the most striking visuals is going to get picked up for the next part, and it's going it, to people are going to run with it. So, I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent his performance of the character. I think it's just kind of a tidying of the whole thing altogether. Now, Penhead is correct if I'm wrong. Penhead is the the one that shows up through all of them, he's kind of like the main uh, Cenobite that comes back, you know, you do get Cenobites of varying flavors as as things go on,
1: and you know... In the first couple of sequels you do get Cenobites of varying um, creativity levels, yeah. um, like in in uh, the one that sticks out to me is in Hellraiser 3, there's the compact disc Cenobite as CDs like embedded in his body and shoots them out and stuff. Isn't there, but it wasn't there
0: one where like Penhead actually like pulls a CD out of his chest and throws it. Or was that that one? Am I mixing it up? I don't Probably, know. probably
1: yeah. from, from part three.
0: I think um, it was like five or six. Like it, it was when, <laughs> it was when things started getting real bad.
1: Well, there was one number five or six or seven or eight or something where, the basis of the film has something to do with a CD-ROM game. Okay. So maybe that's where that comes into place. Maybe. But basically, in the first three films, the Cenobites come back. But in the subsequent sequels, it's pretty much just Pinhead comes yeah. back. Yeah, And uh, again, like we said earlier, it's he's just kind of shoehorned into these mm-hmm. other scripts that it's clear that he doesn't belong in um wasn't there one where they go to space oh yeah that was part 4 i think okay. four or five bloodlines i think okay. it was i don't know they all um, blur together they really do and as much as i genuinely love the first one and and really enjoy 2 and 3 i never really watched past that i've watched like youtube commentators talk about them and stuff like that If you want to go down that road and you've got 20 hours to spare, watch them. I'm sure they all have their moments that are interesting, but as a whole, part of it is just my reverie for Clive Barker. I'll I'll stick to the first couple that Barker has his fingerprints on. (laughs) All right.
0: So, if anybody out there listening to this has twenty hours to spare and they want to fill it with all the uh, the Hellraiser movies, let me know. I will give you something else to do with your time that's going to be much more worth it.
1: It might involve going outside, so that may be a challenge for you. But what you do, what you do is you go to Spotify or Pandora or whatever your podcast streamer of choice is. And you start at season one of the S4 podcast with the letter A. You skip letter B and you go to letter C for creepypasta and you just run with that bad boy. You know what? Go for it.
0: Go for <laughs> it. You know, there's 26 letters in the alphabet. Each episode that we do is about an hour long. Some are a little bit longer. Some are a little bit shorter. So, you know, mm-hmm. the ones that are a little bit shorter. They make up for the ones that are a little bit longer. You can fit in most of season 1 but if you just want to jump to season 2 that's fine there's your 20 hours right there skip the bad movies listen to us make fun of them because we do especially uh independence day yeah we ripped that one apart but oh yeah yeah so okay overall yeah hellraiser the first one i love it but i don't like it anymore but i i still love it <laughs> it's a love hate it's a love hate thing um yeah you know yeah I don't have a need like I don't. I don't feel the need to go back and watch it anymore. Like I don't. I don't feel like yeah. I, it's something that I need to fill my time with. But sure. But I will always have a place for it. You know, I'll always have a love for it. I'm
1: I'm a big horror nerd, and over the years, I have found so many like-minded individuals that have a really strong sense of horror media from a certain decade or generation and so there's plenty of horror fans that are real obsessed with a certain period but not others right so if you like horror films and you've never seen hellraiser i think this is i mean this is kind of a classic i think it's really really solid if you don't like gory weird sexualized kind of films. This might not be your cup of tea, but I think the first one is definitely worth a watch. If you enjoy it, you should probably watch the second one past that. It's up to your discretion. Yeah. I like the third one, but I certainly wouldn't go past that. <laughs> I mean, um, the, the third one is
0: fine, but it I would stop after the second oh, it's one. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: not good. Don't no. get me wrong. But the first two almost work together as like one long epic film. A lot of the same, like Julia comes back, Frank comes back. It's a lot of the same actors. It kind of is is a continuation of the first one. It works as a companion piece.
0: Okay. So Um, there's actually something that I just realized. What was the mom's name again? Was that Julia? Julia. Okay. I want to know what it is about, about these characters, is it something that happens when die at the hands of the Xenobites? Is it, what is it where they are able to uh, thoroughly seduce people with no skin on them at all the time? Because Julia does it in the second movie. Um, Yes, she does. Yeah. I I don't know how uh, I, Mr. Barker, please help me because I want to know why people find in your universe, why people find people with no skin, sexually appealing.
1: As someone who has read more Clive Barker than the average person, finding a person with no skin sexually attractive is not even close to the weirdest thing that Clive Barker portrays as sexually attractive. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. That's fine. That's fair. As much as I love Stephen King and as much as I love Brad Berry and Mathis and all these other horror writers, the thing about Clive Barker that I've always said is he writes disgusting, disturbing stuff with this poetic eloquency that most authors don't have. And it goes right back to the sexual stuff. He writes some disgusting, Disturbing sexual imagery, but poetically, and it's, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre, but yeah. So just to kind of close this out as a horror nerd, I think Hellraiser is required viewing. I think that if you are a horror aficionado, you should see Hellraiser at least once the sequels, that's up to you. The movie is only like an hour and 45 minutes long. The novella won't take you much longer than that to read. I would highly recommend watching the film and reading the novella. And if you enjoy the novella and you enjoy the film, then hey, read the subsequent novels. Watch the subsequent sequels. But you should at least check out the first two.
0: For, For somebody who loves like, little niche movies uh, but then also the big ones you know if you're wanting to go about kind of getting in the big names you know and especially in horror you know you got your uh your freddy krueger your michael myers your jason Mm -hmm. i definitely think pinhead is right up there with him and he is a a staple in the horror world and agree and i think everybody should should see hellraiser if they are you know, interested in the big ones of the horror world, plain and simple. Agreed.
1: Agreed. And with all that being said, talking about horror and monsters, we all know Albert Einstein was a genius, but his brother Frank, he was a monster.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. All right. All right. That's fair.
0: So, one of the things that we have not shied away from speaking on at all. In this is how Julio would um, bludgeon men to death with hammers, but those men would no longer would no longer have birthdays. And do you know why birthdays are good for your health? Why? Because the more you have, the longer
1: you live. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. You know, as our resident monster here. Monsters aren't usually good at math, unless you're Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yes, because
0: he's a count. Yes, yes. I, I
1: okay. You you yeah. picked up on that. No, okay.
0: I I got it. I, I got okay. it. Yeah, like when you said it, I understood.
1: Yeah, but you didn't react, which makes me makes me it makes me hot, and I want to. <laughs> I'm not comfortable when you don't react. Please don't take your shirt off. I will. will.
0: I will react to that. So. When I die. I definitely want to be cremated. That will help me get the smoking hot body that I've always wanted. It's a good joke. You like it.
1: (laughs) it. I'm also pissed off. Because it makes my last joke <laughs> impactful. Which is why I had to make a spurn display by removing my shirt to say What do you call a monster who you can't find? What? Oh werewolf. Oh, I I got it.
0: I got it. Like W H E R E. Yes. Oh, okay, like I'm trying to hold on my like, Wolfman shirt. Like werewolf? I don't know. Yeah. Um,
1: like hey, from yeah. Young Frankenstein? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah That yeah. movie's a classic. Show it respect. Do you know why
0: you don't hear pterodactyls use the bathroom?
1: Because the pee is silent. I already used that joke. No, because they're dead. I have never been more angry. <laughs> I, I will hurt you. This is the maddest I've ever been. And Sarge has drove me to the point of wanting to strangle him with these dad jokes. I hate this. Why do we do this? It makes me so
0: mad. Because your response is, is it's it's worth it every time. Remember yeah. when we used to give shitty advice?
1: Let's just give shitty advice. No, we give now shitty we, jokes
0: now.
1: <laughs> oh, It's so hot in here. I'm so mad. Okay, I'm ending this. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of the is for podcast tonight was H is for Hellraiser, not Harry nipples, which is what's happening here. Thank you on behalf of Sarge. We appreciate you being here. Yes. Yes. Thank you for coming back. Uh, please reach out to us on social media, find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram and Twitter. It's not hard. Danger and Sarge is for a podcast. It's if you can't figure it out, just, google it and it'll it'll pop up eventually if you if you can't figure it out email us at danger and and we'll help you Ooh. out. yeah if you have any feedback or suggestions we'd love to hear it we might read it on the on the show no one's ever reached out to us so hey feel free to do so you'd be the first
0: um and go check us out on uh on the youtubes people seem to like these move these little videos
1: i'm making so i'm gonna keep making them and uh, they are very you know, funny. And now that I know that we're making videos, I should seriously consider leaving my shirt on. But um,
0: I, I'm I, not going to make a video of you without your shirt because then the video will get taken down for nudity. And I no, it won't. It, it won't.
1: No, it won't. No, no it, it, it will not.
0: But um, it may get yeah. taken down for hairy nipples, but you know,
1: So thanks for tuning in. Yes. And we'll see you next.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody.
1: Later. It's over. Done. Done.